We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, where I want to pick up. As we move into this section, I'm going to do a little bit of a bunny trail, and you have that in your notes on page 10. But we're going to do a little bit of a bunny trail to Colossians chapter 3 in just a little bit. And finally, in this section, the conclusion of this section is where Solomon, for the first time, brings God into the picture. And that's going to be a very important part. I hope we can get through all this uh, in the time that we have. As you, at least I think you remember, I hope you remember anyway, uh, Solomon is on this journey, and he's sharing this journey with us. He knows where it ends up because he's writing near the end of his life. If you and I were reading it for the first time, which we're not, but if we were reading it for the first time, we wouldn't know where he's going to end up. But we do know that. Most of the time, you know the answers to a lot of the questions. But Solomon is probing something. And fundamentally, what he's probing is, if I leave God out of the picture, and that's that's how he lived for a good chunk of his life, nothing really has meaning or purpose to it. And we saw how he tried in the earlier part of the chapter, chapter 2, I used the word hedonism, but the pursuit of pleasure, and we just looked how he embellished that. was incredible. Uh, the, the second part now is he's dealing with the issue of material wealth. And he was, you know, presumably one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man who ever lived. And he indulged himself. He writes in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. Now in verse 18, kicking in on what he has said in verse 17, which I think is just a remarkable statement, I hated life. I mean, you think about that. He was the wealthiest man that ever lived. He had enormous amounts of material blessing. He had servants way beyond anything on Downton Abbey. That's supposed to be a joke, but you get it And yet at the same time, he, he's a man who finds that none of this brings meaning, purpose, and fulfillment to life. So he reached a clue. I hated life. And to be real blunt, you know, that's where a lot of Americans are. They have everything at their fingertips. There is almost nothing that they don't have. And I'm not talking about the, when it thinks about American civilization, if we democratize wealth, and I mean the middle class, I'm not talking about living like the Vanderbilts, but even people in the middle class live well, even in the lower middle class compared to the rest of the world live well. So Solomon is saying, like a lot of Americans, I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. I hate life. So he keys in on that in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Now, why would he say that? Because as you already know this, but you're going to see it develop even more. He did work hard, and he amassed an enormous fortune. Now he's beginning to process what's going to happen to that fortune. Because I see that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled, and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Now, what is he saying? And, you know, we can kind of use language we would use today. Uh, Solomon was wise. He invested wisely. He, I'm going to again use language we use today. He has a well-balanced portfolio that guards against all inflationary pressures. He, he's thought deeply about it. And so here is at the end of his life where he's got the stocks, the bonds, a little bit of real estate. He's got some treasuries. He's, he's got mutual funds. He's got a little bit of cash. I'm being funny. But all of that that you think of as balance. And he's thinking, ah, I'm facing death. And I'm going to pass it on to somebody that did not work for it. And I'm going to pass on to somebody where I no longer have control of it. That's what he just said in verse 18 and verse 19. So he then goes on, verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. I mean, wait a minute, Solomon, time out. You have all this wealth. You are secure in your wealth, et cetera, et cetera. You're thinking about passing it on, and now you're falling into despair. Yet, that makes sense. Because fundamentally, he's asking the question, why did I work so hard? Why did I do all this? Jim, 
because one, I'm going to lose control of it, and two, I'm I'm going to watch. I will I will see because he knows a little bit of his heirs. They're not as wise as I am. I would he go ahead. Yeah, I just noted that uh, he had been focusing on the wrong thing. He's discovering that he wasn't paying attention to the Lord, and he was he was doing things that probably did not uh, would not be approved by the Lord. Well, I think that's that's true. And so as he's as he's analyzing all this, he says, "My heart turns to despair." And then he gives us the reason, verse twenty-one. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Who did not toil? I don't know. Maybe you don't know this, but Warren Buffett, who's an extremely wealthy man, he's really against passing on a lot of money to his kids. He's really against inheritance. And the main reason is it because just what Solomon says right here. I'm passing on money to someone who didn't work for it. I worked for it. He didn't. <coughs> so it's just, it's, and again, I don't want to give that in 2023. But Solomon is saying something that a lot of individuals, even today, are disturbed about passing enormous amounts of money on to, to individual people, children. But they didn't work for it. So, this also is a vanity and great evil. What is a man from all of toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. After his work is vexation, vexation, mental anguish. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. And that's just simply saying you worry a lot, you plan a lot, you don't sleep very well. It has been documented. And I'm serious about that. It's been documented. People do not, that do not have a lot of material wealth sleep better than people that have a lot of material wealth. Because they're worrying about things, they're thinking about things. You know, it's, it's just an absolute, very relevant set of comments that Solomon's making. I don't think any of you have any struggle understanding what he's saying. <clears throat> it's like this was written yesterday. It's a 3,000-year-old book. Yeah, if he was given wisdom, why did he go through this? That's the first question. The second question is, is he now moving into the last three years of his life? Is that kind of where he's at in longevity? I, I'm not sure we can be that specific about. What, what did yeah, you say? But it's near the end of his life. Okay. It's near the end. Of, but I, I, I don't know if we can say three years. But it's near the end of his life, yes. And then on the first question. So, I, you know, I think that the whole point, and this really is what Solomon is going to say. God had given me wisdom, but I did not use that wisdom. Oh, okay. We had looked earlier, uh, uh, well, because of our day last week when we didn't have class, two weeks ago, maybe even three weeks ago, I forget when we were dealing with that. But he talks about wisdom, but he meets his clue. I was talking about human wisdom, and that then solved my problem. And so he, he's reaching this conclusion now about material wealth, materialism, if you will. Again, He's going to get to the point where he's going to bring God into the picture. But what I'd like to do, because he's talked several times, he's used the word toil, toil. And that toil, you know, toil is labor. It's working for what you have, what you have acquired. And he says, I don't have any real meaning or purpose even in what I do, my work. So what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, and actually even if you do mind, we're still going to do it. Because I'm teaching and you're not. But I'd like you to go with me. I have it in your notes reproduced on page 10. Oh, it's actually page 4. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it looks like this. It's two PowerPoint slides that I use that I've reproduced for you. Just go to that for just a minute. Um, maybe you don't have it. These are the notes from the first time we did the study that I pulled out. I didn't oh. realize you updated things. Oh, yeah. It really, oh. it really changed a lot. So, Well, if you don't have notes, just, there's a book that's called The Bible. It's probably in front of you. You can turn to Colossians 3, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Here is the Apostle Paul, and this is a, this is a marvelous passage of Scripture. 
But the Apostle Paul has a little comment, if you will, a little commentary on work. And it's like, okay, Solomon, you did not have meaningful toil and work experience. What could you do? Paul is giving an answer to that. Now, um, I, I think you know this, but I'll, I'll state it nevertheless. In verse 22 of Colossians 3, he addresses slaves. Now, now remember, in the ancient world, the primary economic relationship in work was slave to master. Today, you and I would say employee to employer. Because in the ancient world, <clears throat> Paul lives in and is writing during the Roman Empire, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60% of the people in the empire were slaves. And slavery in the ancient world is not like slavery in, in the pre-Civil War South in the United States, which was racial, which was property. You could go in and out of slavery several times during your life. The, the major cause of slavery in the ancient world was debt. If people did not, could not pay their debts, they would go into slavery. They would work off that debt. And you even might call it like an indentured servitude arrangement. But nonetheless, another cause of slavery was if your area was conquered by an, an outside force, most of the times they would enslave the man for a period of time. So anyway, I'm just saying that that was the primary economic relationship. So when we bring it into the 21st century, we would say employees. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who are merely pleased men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So just when you take a quick look at that passage which I just read. That is an enormously important perspective from God's vantage point of work. So I want to ask you two questions. Based on what Solomon had, excuse me, what Paul has just shared with us, and I just read it, who's your boss? Jesus is your boss. God is your boss. As for the Lord rather than man, it's the Lord Christ whom you said, Lord Christ. It's the only time you see that in the New Testament. Lord Jesus Christ is all over the place. Christ the Lord is all over the place. Christ, Lord separately. But Paul says, Lord Christ, which is a title. Your boss is Jesus. The second thing I want you to think with me about from what Paul has written here. Is there an eternal significance to your work? Where do you see that? Where do you see that in this passage? The word inheritance. The word inheritance. Did you see that in, verse, in the middle of verse 24? Because you, you know something. You serve the Lord rather than man. You know something. It's a causal participle. Because you know that from the Lord, you will receive the word of inheritance. I don't exactly know what that means. I don't know exactly what the reward, what he's talking about. Is it something tangible, tactile? Is he just talking about eternal life? There's a lot of discussion about that. Okay, enough. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's enough in, in one second. But Paul is telling something to us about work. Number one, Jesus is your boss. Number two, there's an eternal significance to what you do. If Jesus is your boss, how do you approach your work? Second rate job? Working to the Lord. What's that? We work unto the Lord. Work unto the Lord. What would that practically, what would that look like? Well, substandard effort. Or, if the Lord Jesus is your boss, is excellence your standard? Now, I mean, this, you're supposed to be paying attention here. So, I mean, the, the, the answer to that question is excellence is your standard. You know, it, it's fascinating. Um, <clears throat> As some of you know, my major area of study in my academic work, my four degrees was in history and historical theology. And I read a lot of this stuff. But it's it's fascinating. Max Weber, who was a sociologist and historian, wrote a book called The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And he examined hundreds of years in Europe 
and he noticed something. Where there was a strong work ethic rooted in what the Bible is teaching, it led to the foundation stones of modern capitalism. That's an interesting argument that he made. R.H. Tawney, who was a British historian a couple of decades later, wrote a similar book on the spirit of capitalism. And all they're doing is just making a comment. Where there is a strong work ethic, and what we just looked at in Colossians 3, 22 and following, is an illustration of a work ethic. You're working for the Lord. You have a high set of standards because you're working for the Lord. You do it sincerely. You are a good worker. And if you'll notice, the end of verse 22, sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Fear is a worship word in the Bible. So in terms of our work, it's actually a form of worship where we're working hard, presenting what we do to the Lord. I'm, I'm being very serious about this. This is how this passage is to be applied to our lives. By and large, and I hope you track with me and agree with me, by and large, people who have the Lord, love the Lord should be the best workers out there. I heard one amen to that. Amen. There's two. Now, it's just, it, I'm, I'm trying not to be silly here. This is, this is really important to me personally, but excellence is our standard. And, and therefore, everything we do, assuming it's not forbidden by Scripture, and everything we do is honorable to the Lord. You know, a day laborer that works is working for the Lord. Excellence is standard. There's a, a man in my church who's uh, he's just a wonderful guy. He works for Union Pacific. But he's, he's single, and he loves to work with his hands, and he does job. I had him over to my house the last two weeks doing some job, some work on my house. It wasn't major, but uh, doing some things. And I, I've never seen a guy work like Frank does. I mean, he is a perfectionist. He was painting one of our rooms. You should have watched. You should have seen. He put layer after layer after layer of the mud. This is a house. This isn't a place of business. But he, it took him five days just to cover up all the holes and little crack. Our house was an older house. And he just says, layer after layer. And he said, no, Jim, I want this to be perfectly flat. I don't want you to see this. And so I just watched him do that. You know, he, I wasn't, you know, a major contractor. I, all I was was a friend of his, but it was, it was amazing. Excellence was his standard. And I talked to him because I, I know he works at UP. And he works out in the yard with lots of guys. And he, he's a, a boss. He brings that. He said, the norm for us, this is what he tells the men, the norm for us is excellence. I am not going to accept anything other than excellence. That's what he told me. What is he doing? He's reflecting a passage like this as he lives out his work. And even in his side job, that's what he pursued. You ought to see that room. My wife said to me after he was all done, he finished Saturday, Yesterday, she says, hey, this is the nicest room in our house. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, you can see the rooms I worked on, and my son and I worked on, and the room he worked on. What a difference. I mean, he knows what he's doing. I don't. But that, besides that, it's just it was an amazing thing to see. See Frank at work and see how he pursued it. And he kept referring to this passage of Scripture. This is why I do what we do. Now, Solomon is missing all of that in what we're, what we're studying here as we, we come back now to, uh, to, to uh, Ecclesiastes. The answer to what, what frustration and despair he's feeling, as he reflected on, as we studied it, is answered in what Paul says about work and about toil. It's not about money. It's not that wages aren't important. That's part of what you owe, how it works. But it's about you serve the Lord. You give it your best because Jesus is your Lord. Um, can you repeat the author of that book? So the, uh, Max Weber, W-E-B-E-R. Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It's an older book. 
I know it's still in print, so if you Amazon it, it should be out there. All right, are you with me? Yes. Okay, thank you. Two of you are with me. The rest, I'll just assume you're silent. You're with we are. We're here. All right, good. Thank you, Glenn. I, you're speaking for everybody. Now, in verse 24 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he brings God into the picture. This is the first time where Solomon really brings the Lord into the picture. He had mentioned God, one of them, but now it's a major way. How does he begin to resolve this? What we saw, hedonism doesn't work. Wisdom, human wisdom doesn't work. Materialism doesn't work. None of that brings meaning and purpose to my life. As a matter of fact, as he says several times, what it does is produces despair, such that twice he says, I hate life. Verse 24, he's bringing his argument to its first major conclusion. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Why? Verse 25. Or you could translate that because, apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. That's marvelous. Solomon has reached an enormously important conclusion. A watershed in his argument. Nothing satisfies, nothing brings joy until I bring God into the picture. From the hand of God comes wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Let's talk a little bit about that. As a matter of fact, let's talk a lot about that. Wisdom. It's really, it's really interesting that Solomon sources wisdom and knowledge and joy. Wisdom, knowledge, and God. Now, a Greek or Roman in the Greco-Roman world at the time Paul uh, lived and he wrote, read a little bit from one of his. Verses. If you would ask a Greek or a Roman person, where, where do you find wisdom? Oh, it's very easy. You start with Socrates, then you read Plato, his student, and then you read Aristotle, his student. That's the beginning of getting wisdom. Who did they get the wisdom? That's the question. Plato and them. <clears throat> well, uh, by observing life, by drawing conclusions from life. Socrates, if you know anything about his method, you would just ask questions. You just ask questions. You just ask questions. Why this? Why this? Why this? Why this? Solomon isn't saying that. In, in the time of Jesus, if you would say to a Jewish person, where do you get wisdom? My rabbi, who tells me what Torah means. Today, if you would ask, I don't know if you could even ask somebody that today in this postmodern, post-Christian uh, era in which we live, that you would uh, stop someone on the street or, or, or someone, where, where, where's wisdom? Where do you get wisdom? Well, I watch Oprah. That's my source of wisdom. I watch Dr. Oz. That's my source of wisdom, Dr. Hill. So Solomon is saying God is the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So what is wisdom? Let's, let's 
Can we try to get a working definition of that? Because you all say, God is the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. You say, amen, amen, I agree. And I say, what is wisdom? You say, well, I'm not sure I know what that is. I'm anticipating your question, so let's answer it. I'll take a crack at it. It's the ability to apply knowledge in a helpful way. Well, that sounds like right out of Webster's Dictionary. It really does. That's, I promise I didn't read it. I didn't that's, 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 that's not that. Not that. <laughs> so wisdom has to do with the application of knowledge. Wisdom answers the question how to live. Knowledge is content, skill, and um, well, I'm trying to think of an, a, a word that's not a really huge word. Content, skill, and usable information. Joy is the result of these two. So, if you, when Solomon says, God is the source of wisdom, God is the source of knowledge, where do you go to get God's knowledge? In your book. In his Bible. In his book. Because for a believer, whether you're Old Testament or New Testament believer, knowledge, and I'm not using this as the last book of the New Testament, I'm using it as God's revelation to you, man. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in, in a verbal way, In that verbal way is the book that you're holding in your lap or on the table or wherever, on your phone or wherever you're using. And so that's what Solomon so. If I have God's revelation, which is not content, skills, and information about <clears throat> uh, purpose of things, etc., then I can take this knowledge and apply it. Know how to live. We just read, although it's in the New Testament, we just read Colossians 3, which is a very important knowledge, but it's how to take that knowledge and apply it to reach the joy of meaningful, purposeful work. And so it's just when you when you start to put all this together as Solomon's done with these three terms, you really you know that is really true. If God's my creator and God's my redeemer, and he's revealed himself, and I can know about him, I can know about his world, I can know about his purpose, then I am going to be able to develop applicational skills in how to live. And if I develop applicational skills on how to live, I will experience the joy of the Lord. So he's saying, so he's, he's finally getting, it's frustrating because we've been in it for several weeks now. He's finally getting to a conclusion of one of the major arguments he reaches in this book. If I leave God out of my life and out of the picture, despair is the result. But I bring God into the picture, and I acknowledge that he's the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. All of a sudden, I have a whole new vantage point about my life. And so this is, this is profound, and yet, in, in one sense, you already know that. Because, I mean, you're a Christian, you made that decision of faith, you're serious about following the Lord, and so on. So you, you, you read something, and you shake your head, yes. In my life, it took me quite a few decades to get to that point. I was born in 1947. I did not come to faith in the Lord until 1972. And it, you know, up until that point, in one sense, it was a little bit like Solomon. I was trying everything to find what was meaningful purpose and joy because I was running away from the Lord. It wasn't until I sort of gave up and said, okay. And now I look back on that and I say, this is absolutely right. Because he said, the one who pleases the Lord, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. To the sinner, he's given the business of gathering, collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. How do you understand that? There's a lot, a lot of discussion about that in the commentaries, in the expositors. 
What exactly is something saying that? Because I don't know about you, but I haven't observed a lot of unrighteous, sinful people driving their cars up to my door and emptying their bank account into mine. You know, I'm being a little facetious there. Most expositors understand this primarily in terms of what the future, in what God is going to do when Christ, this is getting way ahead of the story of the Bible, but as Christ returns and makes everything right, all that is a part of what God has will now be owned by and have dominion authority over his righteous people who he's redeemed. So the, the, the actual full meaning of this is with the future kingdom of God in mind. And God is going to make everything right. And so it's, 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 a, it's a helpful, it's a meaningful, and it's an important conclusion that Solomon is reaching. He's finally brought God into the picture. I can't imagine any questions mm. because you would agree with what he's saying. But he's only begun, he's only begun now the investigation for the rest of the book. God's in the picture. But the providence of God creates a lot of tension for me. The providence of God creates a lot of things I don't understand, and I'm supposed to be wise, and I have his knowledge. Now, go ahead. Well, one of the questions. I want to transition to chapter 3, which is God's now in the picture. I, I, I'm not sure this question will keep us in chapter 2, but I don't really know. One of the words, you mentioned another word he uses repetitively. One of the words he's using all the way through here is vanity. Mm -hmm. What is vanity? The Hebrew word is chaleb, very difficult to translate. Chaleb is a Hebrew word, can mean vanity, which is how ESV is translated in other translations. It is, literally means vapor. Chaleb literally means vapor. So, yeah, I mean, that's really a vapor. What is it? <laughs> Meaningless, purposeless, emptiness. They're all words that are associated with trying to bring it into English. Okay, so, and so if I can, if I can embellish that just a little bit, Rob, it's, sure. if I'm leaving God out of the picture, it's like a vapor. I can't find meaning or purpose. It's like an empty vapor to me. I'm chasing after wind. That's another metaphor you yeah. use. And do you ever catch the wind? <laughs> yeah. You can chase after the wind on a summer day. You're never going to catch it. That's silly, but that's the point. So you say, this just has no meaning to me. But God's in the picture. Because God's a source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy for me. What a, what a, this is something he looks back. He's near the end of his life. He looks back in his life. I missed so much of this. So, so he's Because really, I was living my life for self. You know, as we said, we read earlier. Anything I wanted, I took. Anything I desired, I took. Yeah, so we usually think of vanity as, you know, somebody's concerned with his looks or her looks. That's somebody that's vain. But that's not really what he... This it means here it's more like a vapidness, an emptiness. I think so. That's why, although I'm reading from the ESV translation, they translated vanity. I'm not happy with the translation of vanity for two reasons. Number one, nobody talks like that anymore. No who right. in the world knows what vanity means. Nobody ever uses that sentence. But secondly, because of just what you said, it can lead to the idea. Well, I, vain. I know what that means. Someone that's vain. But if you look at Webster's Dictionary, vain can also mean empty. I see. A second attendant meaning of vain is empty. Yeah. And in a sense, someone who's just focused on themselves, that's very empty. A selfish, yeah. self-indulgent, self-serving person is a very empty person. Because it does not take too long to realize that narcissistic selfishness doesn't lead anything. Reflect you back on wisdom and knowledge, and, and, and it's really wisdom and knowledge are kind of kind of cyclical and it's progressive, like the progressive revelation of God. And for the Christian, that that progression is actually the 
the sanctification process that we're going through. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And as we as we gain more knowledge and understanding of who God is, who we are, what his purposes are, we should be gaining more wisdom. And more joy. And therefore more joy. That's right. That's why this is a, these are three marvelous words to really unpack. And and you just did that quite wonderfully. Unpack them and apply them through the grid of the New Testament, because we have a much greater understanding of this because of, of the New Testament and that, that, that very important word of sanctification. Now, uh, yeah. Uh, this Bible here, that guy has a footnote on the word vanity in chapter one, and it says absurdity, frustration, futility, nonsense. It all fit. Yep. Yeah. Futility. The word I use when I do the translate, I usually translate it futility. Mm -hmm. That's the word. If I would prefer to translate it futility. Well, what futility is in yeah. this day and age. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Now, what I want to do, we have about 20 minutes, but I want to introduce because chapter three is a very famous, particularly the first eight verses. There's been a song, maybe I come out of the 60s and 70s yeah. when I was in high school and college. And this song is a very popular song. But anyway, but let me tell you what's going on here. Solomon has brought God into the picture now. But that's created more tension for him. Because it doesn't answer all his questions. And this is what I'm going to summarize where Solomon is going to be. He's going to be on this track until we get to chapter 8. <laughs> But it's, this is a track. There's a mystery to life. <clears throat> and because God is sovereign and I recognize his providence, I still am not getting all answers to my questions. And I'm still not solving all the mysteries of life. And Solomon will admit, I can't figure everything out. Even though I'm wise, I can't figure everything out. And every question I have, is not getting answered. So what he's going to do here in this chapter, as we track now, uh, uh, move into chapter 3, is he's going to begin to explore the providence of God. Now, I want to make sure you understand that, that that's a very, the providence of God. The providence of God is an element of his sovereignty. But what does providence mean? The word provide gives us stuff, what we need. Okay, that is a, a part of it, yes. Any other thoughts about the providence of God? I mean, he does what he wants. Okay. okay, that would fit definitely into his sovereignty. In some of our founders' writings, they use providence as a synonym. Yeah, I mean, the Declaration of Independence has the word providence in it. That was George Washington's favorite term. He used the word providence all the time. Is God, is God an absentee landlord? Is God involved? Is God superintending everything? That's the word I like to use. You know what I mean? Superintending everything. Or is, are things out of control for God? I didn't know that was going to happen. If I didn't know that was going to happen, I wouldn't have done this. Is that God? No. That's silly to talk about. And so, no, no, you're familiar with this. This is the tension of the railroad tracks. You have divine sovereignty and divine providence on the right-hand side of the railroad track. You have responsible freedom, responsible human being on the left-hand side of the railroad track. They are both true. What Solomon is going to start to experience is the frustration of not trying to solve this because he, he, he explores the mystery of life. And he's going, to, he's going to give you lots of, I've been very wise, I've done this, I've done this, but this shouldn't happen to me. I've been wise, I've been careful, but I fall and break my leg. Why'd that happen? The mystery, the mystery of life. Because you see, if you acknowledge the sovereignty and providence of God, you must admit something. I'm not in control. 
You follow me? Because in effect, the the doctrine of the providence of God means I'm not in control. And if I'm not in control, I am not necessarily going to understand everything. That's why we reach the conclusion. There is a mystery about life. You and I live in a fallen, broken world. And so what happens with us accepting this, that I'm not in control, you have two, two major responses. You have the moralist that comes on, and this is Dr. Karma in Hinduism and Buddhism. If you do really, really good things, you'll always have really, really good results. If you do really, really bad things, you'll always have really, really bad results. And so you want to do lots of good things so that in your next life you have good karma. Because you don't want to do a lot of bad things because in your next life you have bad karma. You'll come back as a raccoon. Or a squirrel. Or a squirrel god. <laughs> <laughs> so you follow what I'm saying. So that, the moralist says that. The fatalist says, you don't control anything, just accept. Okay, tough it out. That's not wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So the moralist and the fatalist, and Solomon's going to reject both of those. But he's still going to end up with frustration. And so as I studied Ecclesiastes, I said, well, I, I am so identified with that. Because that mystery to life, because you and I live in a fallen, broken world, that in addition to not having control, there is sin everywhere, evil everywhere. And we are living with the consequences of sin and evil all around us, including the sin and evil that have been a part of our lives. And so Solomon now begins as we transition to chapter 3. So I want to make a statement. This is Solomon speaking. I want to make a statement about time. I want to make a statement about God's perspective about time, and therefore my perspective about time. For everything, I'm reading for the ESV translation, it may or may not be exactly that in your translation or in what you're using. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Two key words there. Season, time. Who invented time? God did. God did. It's tied into his creation ordinance in chapter 1 of Genesis. So God created time. So Solomon is saying, not only did God create time, God is in control. Things happen in a season. Things happen in a time. Everything fits this. And I observe nature. I observe the cycles of the things in heaven. So this is, what, this is poetry. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what has planted and planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. Time to break down, time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear, a time to sow. Time to keep silence, time to speak. Time to love, time to hate. Time for war, time for peace. Now, they're, in, in literature, they're called merisms. They're the two opposites. But what, what is he doing here? He's going through all aspects and all dimensions of life. And he begins with what we're uncomfortable with. A time to be born, a time to die. That's a season and a time for every living being on earth. Can you avoid it? You understand what I'm saying? So what he's doing, he's just he's trying to say that God has set up his world with such a structure to it that there's a time for everything 
under heaven. Do you do you want to talk about any of these? I mean, are they pretty self-evident to you? I mean, there's there's fourteen of them. It's a list of fourteen. You know, there are 14, it's poetry. Fourteen opposites that he's itemized here, and it's kind of it's it's kind of touching on all facets and all phases of life. What's the uh, meaning of the throw stones and downers? Like construction probably in the language of the original that he's he's talking about there he's talking about a building process a time to scatter building materials a time to gather up building materials there are going to be times when you tear down a building. There are going to be times when you gather material to rebuild the building. That's what we just what Frank did in my one room. How could that be applicable to um, um, destroy the temple and, uh, and they'll rebuild it three days? <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah, gee, is there speaking figuratively, but yeah, but even that is under God's control. If you, if you say, okay, why is he saying all this in poetry? Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity in man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Okay, he's just given a little poetry, just given a little commentary on time, that God has set up things in such a way that everything in our lives, the 14 opposites that he's listed, are actually in God's control. He set up things, season and time, just like this. But he says on the us, there are three things that God does. There are three aspects of God's providence. There are three dimensions of God's superintendence of all these things that he wants us to learn. And they're in verse 11. There are three items there. I want to spend, I hope we can get through all this in this hour. First of all, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. There's an appropriate time for every activity. Every one of those things he mentions in that poem is a time that God has set. God's organized life like this, and it's beautiful. Now, I, when, when he uses the word beautiful, it's an aesthetic word. It doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's always attractive to look at, like a beautiful flower on a summer day or a beautiful sunset or sunrise. Or whatever you could regard as beautiful, but in the sense of it's it's orderly, it's meaningful, and it's 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 delightful because God did it. It's beautiful in its time. How can death be beautiful in its time? Because that's one of the things you mentioned. Put eternity in our heart. Well, let's, let's not get to that yet. That, that, that has something else. That has another meaning to it. How can death be regarded as beautiful? Yeah, because, like Solomon says, it's better the end of something than the beginning. And it's true. Okay. Why, why, is, why is death so beautiful for a believer? Absence on the body. Oh, okay, because you know this is the beginning of life with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 8. And and so it, in that sense, that's hard because all of us, quite certain it's true in this room, all of us have experienced the death of someone that we care about, love, the grief. But, but still, for a believer, there, there's that sense that is beautiful because I, you know, I've lost both my parents. Peggy's lost her mom. The one thing about both of us, as grieving as it was, is we know they're all with the Lord. And in awe, they were 93, 94, 96 at their respective ages. They all suffered. There was all a lot of difficult things those last years of their lives. 
It all ends the moment they take their last breath with the Lord. So in that sense, that's part of what, everything that's a part of these merisms, of this poetry, from God's perspective is beautiful. Now he makes a second statement. He put eternity into man's heart, into the human heart. A profound statement. It is profound. Profound statement, one of the big ones in the Bible. What? What does that mean? That's why it's profound. <laughs> we don't know exactly. Or all of it. What? What? what let's let's not set, let's probe it a bit. What? What's? What's the meaning of that? He's put eternity in man's heart, in the human heart. Is what does that mean? Let me realize we're not going to. The death here is in the end. We're going to continue on. Whatever. But how does that fit? How does that fit though with time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, catch what's done? How does it fit all those mundane things of life? Well, it, puts the, it, puts, uh, it puts the joy to it that you go through all this stuff. But at the end, it's eternal life in God if you make it part of him. And that makes, you know, we all go through a lot of crap in life. And uh, it's just the way it is. But if you have eternity in your heart, like set your mind on things above where Christ is, well, that, that's all you need. You know, that's good to the, like me, I can get negative, but I'm uh, basically a profoundly satisfied, happy, uh, God-maintained human being. But uh, if God, if, if uh, <clears throat> God is the center of your heart. You're not going to be a happy person. There's all this stuff over here on the list. It's really going to bother you. But that's so for, uh, let's, thanks for all that. Now let's let some others maybe talk. Um, if, if you have an unbeliever, a person who does not believe in God, a person who's rejected God's revelation in nature, in conscience, in the moral law, and Jesus rejected all that, is there still eternity in their hearts? Yeah. Anybody else? Anyone else? Absolutely. They have the the option to get eternity in their heart. Um, Okay. But what I, in light of everything, everything you said, you're on the right track, but I want to press this a little harder here. Because this is a, this is a very very a- important aspect of the human condition. God has put in the human heart a desire to know the significance of what I do. That's what He's been talking about in the first three chapters of this book. In other words, God has put in every human being the the the, the desire to figure why am I doing what I'm doing. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, you begin to understand that. And so what Solomon is saying to us is the kind of things that some of the other great individuals in church history have said. The great Augustine, who I recommended a couple weeks ago, his wonderful book, Confessions, the greatest spiritual autobiography ever read, written, I think. But he said this, God has put in our heart the desire to find rest in him, and we will never find rest until we rest in him. That's a paraphrase of what Solomon just said. There's a frustration. There's an anxiety. There's a a futility to what people do because they're striving to find Why am I doing this? What's the importance of this? And as you get older, at least this is a general statement, it isn't always true, but often as you get older, the more and more frustrating this becomes. Why am I doing all this? That's what Solomon's talking about in the first two chapters. But this is what Solomon's getting at. That God has put in us a deep-seated desire to find out the meaning and purpose of why we're doing what we're doing. And if God is out of the picture, and you purposely, consciously, and intentionally reject that, you're never going to get that big hole 
inside of you filled. What's yes, Fred. Chairman, what verse, what's where in the First Corinthians ten thirty one. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Kind of recognition that whatever we do, if we focus on who we do it for, it has greater meaning than if we're just out there. Well, ultimately, yeah, that's right. I mean, ultimately, that's you come in 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 our. Uh, perspective of things as Christians, you come to faith in Christ, and things begin to make sense. But and I, I, I agree with that. But I'm, I'm hoping you're not missing the point. What Solomon is saying: God has put this in the heart of every human being. So, so, so only those who respond in faith are going to be able to find that. That's what Augustine said. We we desire rest, and we'll never find rest until we rest in you. So. What what did he put in our hearts? And here, my translation says eternity. Um, Thomas Sowell is not known for his religion, but more for his economics. But he wrote a book on stage two thinking. Germs between stage one and stage two thinking. Well, in this context, what stage two thinking? It's not thinking about this life. It's not the case sarah sarah. Stage two thinking in this context is thinking about eternity. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of your actions in this life and how they affect the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, so why why do you need God? It's because our life here is very temporal. And isn't he suggesting with this statement that if it's eternity that's in our heart, it, I I don't see eternity without God. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm very familiar with Tom Soul and his writings are one of those every sentence I have to stop. I need to think about that sentence. He's, he's really but that stage two, that's a biblical way of saying you will never find meaning and purpose until you begin to understand the eternal significance of what you're doing. Every, this is the meaning of discernment. I begin to understand the significance and consequence of every choice I'm making. That's wisdom. Typically, human beings, especially young human beings, children and so on, they just act impulsively. They just act. As you get older, and sometimes it seems like they're never going to get this until they're 40 years old, but as they get older, they begin to think wisely about the choices they're making as they begin to understand if I do this, it's going to this kind of, if I do this kind of this consequence. Wisdom is I begin to understand what the consequences are. And so, but the main point, and I hope I've got to quit because I'm already over, but, and so we're not done with what I want to get done, but that's okay. We'll get, just pick up with this next week and start all over again. I'm going to start with verse 10 all over again. But this, this, this is imperative as we live today. God has put in every human being the desire to understand the eternal significance of what you do. Because, as I mentioned earlier, this is both common sense and it's also been verified in lots of studies. As people get older and they start thinking about death, that's when these questions come to the forefront. A a 20-year-old, for the most part, a 20-year-old is not thinking about death. Maybe they should be, but they're not. But a 70-year-old, that becomes a very important part of their life. And so, but there's something more. I'm, just, I'm not done with this, but um, the Filipinos call that God on the wall. We must obey that God on the wall. So, what do you want to pick up? What's that? Three times. I'm going to start again with verse 10. I'm going to start right there again next, next week. Online, I hope you guys have been with me here. We were... Yep. Not the bunny trail, but okay. I got to pray so, so we can get Can we remember Yes. Father, thank you for our study here. Um, Solomon is uh, reflecting on and dealing with things that are at the heart of the human condition. And he's now begun to bring God into the picture as he's working through in this journey he's on and we're on it with him beginning to factor God into the picture. And it is not going to answer all his questions, but it's going to 
solves some of it. And the first thing he deals with is God is in control of time. That does not necessarily answer all our questions either. But we're just beginning this. So Lord, help me to be patient. Uh, and as we go through this, we try to communicate the best we can what Solomon is really teaching us here. So Lord, as we're dismissed now, we ask your dismissal with your blessing. Take care of us. Watch over us. We trust each man to you in Christ's name. Amen.